Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is Radar Bjorhovda, Ph.D., P.E. Radar graduated from the Norwegian Institute of Technology in 1964 with a master's degree in civil engineering and received his doctorate in 1968. He earned a second PhD in civil engineering at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in 1972. Dr. Bjorhovda was an assistant professor and Norwegian government fellow in the Division of Steel Structures at the Norwegian Institute of Technology until 1968 when he joined Fritz Engineering Laboratory at Lehigh University. He subsequently worked for the American Institute of Steel Construction as regional engineer in charge of the Boston office and as research engineer at AISC headquarters in New York. He was a professor at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he was head of the Department of Civil Engineering. He is now president of the Bjorhovda Group, a consulting firm and international engineering consortium located in Tucson. Dr. Bjorhovda's extensive research work has addressed strength, stability, and load and resistance factor design of steel structures, residual stresses in steel members, analysis, testing, and design of columns, welded and bolted connections, including gusset plates, and high cyclic testing of beam-to-column connections. Radar is a member of the Committee on Specifications of AISC, the Committee on Specifications of the American Iron and Steel Institute, and he was chairman of the Structural Stability Research Council and a member of the SSRC Executive Committee. He was a member of the Executive Committee of the Technical Activities Division of the ASCE Structural Engineering Institute and served as its chair for 2002-2003. He continues to be a member of many other committees of AISC, AISI, ASCE, ECCS, SSRC, and several other national and international organizations. Dr. Bjorhovda is a fellow of the American Society of Civil Engineers and has received a number of awards, including the T.R. Higgins Award of AISC, the prestigious research fellowship of the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, the IMCA Award of the Mexican Institute of Steel Construction, the Lynn S. Beadle Award of the Structural Stability Research Council, and the AISC Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as being named an honorary fellow by the Singapore Structural Steel Society. The author of more than 300 archival publications, he has lectured and consulted in numerous countries and has presented papers at various conferences and industry assemblies. He is a registered professional engineer in the U.S., Canada, and Norway. Welcome, Radar. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, during your busy TC meeting week to talk to me today. It's my pleasure to be here. AISC is a very major presence in my professional life, and it's a delight to, to work with all of you at AISC, oh, good. as Thank I have for many, many years. Thank you so much. You're originally from Norway. How did you make your way to the U.S.? Well, I um, finished my first degree in Norway in 1964, which actually was a master's degree. That's, that was the first degree. And I had been doing research there as well and uh, wanted to go to the U.S. My concrete professor was actually director of Fritz Lab for several years back in the 1930s. Plus my steel professor, who was my mentor, he had done a lot of work on steel bridges, suspension bridges. And so we had been talking about this and, and I knew I wanted to come to the U.S. to do some research and whatever. And well. When you are young, you are not afraid of doing things. And so I set it up and uh, talked to the American Embassy in Oslo, and they recommended I should get a green card because if I wanted to stay after having finished my stay at Lehigh, which is where I elected to go, I could stay without any problem because I would be a landed immigrant, as the Canadians call it. 
Anyway, so I did that, uh, came to the U.S. in 1968. I've been here since then. That's 43 years this coming September 7th. Wow, and you even know the day. Yeah. <laughs> Flew into uh, JFK and was picked up by, by, by my advisor from Lehigh. He actually drove from Bethlehem to JFK to pick me up. I assume you can still speak Norwegian. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm fluent in, in Norwegian and a few other languages as well. And I, I saw your questions about uh, how do you say I love steel. Well, the word love in Norwegian is only used for the love between a man and a woman. Oh, okay. So you wouldn't use that word. So would you, you would say, say I, like I, I like steel a lot. <laughs> <laughs> how do you say that in Norwegian? <laughs> you can say, jeg liker stål veldig godt. That's yeah. a good question. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can give you the expression in, in several other languages, if you wish. How many other languages do you speak? Seven. Seven? Wow. Comes from living, growing up in a very small country. So, obviously English and Norwegian. Yeah. And then... French, German, Spanish, Swedish, Danish. That's very impressive for... And I can read Portuguese and I can read Italian and, and Dutch. Wow. <laughs> so you learned all that growing up or you've learned it traveling as an adult? No, I learned it growing up and, and going through school and I, for example my French comes through because I did a lot of work with people in France over a period of many years mm -hmm. so it helps to go to Paris like my wife came with me for the first time she when she came with me for the first time she realized that she liked Paris mm -hmm. but she had been there as a young college student and she didn't care for it very much really because she didn't speak any French well that makes it harder <laughs> well, what attracted you to the civil engineering field well I have um, I had to an uncle and a cousin who were architects. And I thought of studying architecture, but the study of architecture at that location, there's only one university that handles technical and, and architecture studies in Norway. Uh, the architecture studies were very arts-oriented for the first two years, mm -hmm. where you literally went in and, and did figure drawings, and they had brought in male and, and female models, and I decided that wasn't for me. <laughs> I mean, because I'm, I'm not a very good drawer, you know, an art artistic drawer. So I, I like to build things, and I decided on civil engineering because that's what the civil engineer does. Mm -hmm. You design and build things. So that's why I did. So you said that you did your second um, PhD at Lehigh. Yeah, I got, I got a PhD in Norway after, uh, right before I left to come to the U.S., and then I got a PhD at Lehigh. So then where did your career take you after that? Well, I worked for AISC for five years. Mm -hmm. You were a regional uh, engineer. I was a regional engineer in Boston, Massachusetts, before Emil Troop, if you have run across him. I do, yes, <laughs> I know Emil. And then I was transferred down to New York. I worked with Bill Millick and Ted Higgins, in fact, and, and Bob Bisquay, of course. Mm -hmm. Bob. So for five years I worked with AISC, and uh, I loved it. But somehow academia kept pulling you back. Pulling me back, and so I, I ended up going to the University of Alberta in Canada for five years. Came back to the U.S. to Arizona, and then to Pittsburgh, where I spent twelve years on the faculty. On the faculty. So, um, you've been a professor for a good part of your career. Yeah. Um, with such a long history with engineering students, what's the best advice you could give them? To me, the best advice I can give students is, if there is something you don't understand or something you want to know. Ask a question. That is part of the professor's job to answer questions because then you can really get into very interesting discussions. Many years ago, one of my colleagues, and I was department head at Pittsburgh then, he said, these students are so stupid. I said, no, John, engineering students are the cream of the crop. We get the very good ones. He, I said, they're not stupid, they're ignorant, and it's our job to make them unignorant. Yes. <laughs> and he said, I guess you're right. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Well, that's an excellent attitude to have uh, as a professor. Uh, what do you think is the greatest reward you've received from teaching for so many years? Well, I've had a lot of grad students and undergraduate students, and I always worked very closely with them, encouraging them to come and see me. If you have questions, whatever, we'll discuss things, especially with my grad students. And so as a result, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who were former students. Uh, for example, uh, one of my students, Brian McElhatton, he works with Bill Baker at SOM in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And we have been exchanging a few things recently, he and I. One of my former students runs the operations on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, the, there are interesting careers that they have developed, and it's uh, one of the great pleasures of seeing them succeed. Mm -hmm. And I take that as a great compliment. Uh, you're our expert on international research. Uh, what are some of the most interesting research projects that are going on outside the U.S. right now? There's a lot going on. For example, in April I was in, in Europe for meetings in, in England as well as in Germany. And the meeting in Germany was part of a committee for the ECCS, that's the European Convention for Constructional Steelwork, mm -hmm. in the city of, of Karlsruhe in Germany. They have a, one of the elite German universities, and the work in steel and um, wood structures is very, very active. In fact, I have a listing of about uh, six or eight projects that they are involved in right now at Karlsruhe, and I will be describing them in my next current Structural Steel Research article in the Engineering Journal. Uh, that's in Karlsruhe. Interesting, you go to a place like Coimbra in Portugal, it's about uh, 100 miles north of Lisbon. They have a very old university, it's the fifth oldest university in the world, wow. but they have a very, very aggressive faculty in civil engineering. They have currently about 15 faculty members in, in structure, steel and composite construction. Uh, they have 30 PhD students. Very, very aggressive research group going on there. They're dealing with the fire, for example, fire research for composite structures, for steel structures. Same thing in, in the Czech Republic, for example, a lot of work on fire. You go to, um, I spent a bit of time in China. Last November, pardon me, last October, I spent two weeks in Beijing. I was visiting professor at Tsinghua University, which is referred to as the, the MIT of China. But I spent time in, in, in Beijing, in Shanghai, a number of other places in, in China. They do a lot of research. They have a lot of research money in China. Mm -hmm. And I'm paying very close attention to what they are doing because what they are doing, we can make use of it to many, many degrees. They have very fine lab facilities. They have excellent computational facilities. Their graduate courses are all taught in English. Wow. So my attitude is we may want to make sure that we keep them as our friends so that they can learn from us as they have, of course. Of course. Because the U.S. has been the lead in steel research for forever. But there are developments that have taken place over the last many years in China, in Japan, in Korea, in Europe, all over. Sydney, Australia has some of the finest research facilities in the world. Really? Superb. Hmm. So uh, very interesting things going on. That's I, I keep close attention, pay close attention to this because it helps us and helps our engineers and our industry to make sure that we don't miss anything that is being developed. Of course. So maybe I'm a spy, I don't know, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, but well. they, they share very willingly as they do from Japan, as they do from China, as they do from 
for example, in my next article, the one after the next one, I will be featuring the National University of Singapore, which is one of the 10 best universities in the world. They have a terrific group of researchers there. I'll be featuring uh, University of Sydney, New South Wales University in, in Australia, as well as also Nanyang University, which is another university in Singapore. And this is a piece you're writing for the Engineering Journal, you yeah. think? Yeah, it's the current steel structures researched. I'm, I finished 26 of those articles, and I'm writing one right now, which will be finished next week. But it's um, to keep abreast of what is going on in research and development and to make sure that our engineers and researchers, and especially our code writers in the U.S., can be able to take advantage of developments that have taken place elsewhere, but that are clearly applicable to what we do here. Right, right. Because steel is steel. Steel is steel. So obviously you're involved in the steel industry all over the world. Uh, can you tell us about some of the interesting people you've met and some of the interesting conferences going on around the world? Well, I, I'm not going to mention any names of people because there are so many of them. <laughs> but I have very close connections, for example, in, in Europe because that's where I grew up. And the Europeans, although I'm, I'm an American and I've lived in the U.S. for more than 40 years, I think they look at me still as one of them. So I have very close connections in, in Britain, for example, in uh, all over Europe, uh, close in China, Japan, Australia. Anyway, it's all fascinating because these are all, we're all people, we're all engineers, and we're all interested in getting the best solutions possible, and we share willingly with each other. Conferences. The best, of course, is our conference. Well, good. I'm glad No question. That. Absolutely no question. But not the least because we focus on bringing solutions usable solutions to the engineers here in the U.S. And of course we do have some international attendees at the conference here in the U.S. as mm -hmm. well. Not that many, but, uh, but for example uh, in um, next month I'll be in a conference in uh, Malaysia, which is the International Conference on Steel and Aluminum Structures. I was invited to give a keynote there. Mm -hmm. That's in July. And what's your keynote going to be on? Uh, I'm talking about research. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> but then, for example, you look at um, last October when I was in Beijing, I also was at the Pacific Structural Steel Conference, which is held every, every three years. The next one will be in Singapore in 2013. Uh, you have the Eurosteel Conference, which will be held in Budapest in September this year. Uh, it's a very active group in Romania, where next year we will have the next international workshop on connections and steel structures. That's something I started back in 1987 with a French group, actually. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of very interesting things going on, but uh, is, there has become almost tradition the U.S and what we do in conferences and what we project to the rest of the world is still the leader. No that's question. That's nice to hear. Yeah. Like we talked about, you are a former AISC regional engineer. Uh, what was it like to be a regional engineer in the 70s? I loved it. I loved being a regional engineer because I liked working with engineers and I liked working with architects. And I was in Boston. And Boston has very, very advanced architects. You know, people like Philip Johnson, for example, some of the, the great architects. Mm -hmm. Um, at the time, I also had very long hair, relatively <laughs> long hair, and so I walked into an architect's office and I was accepted immediately because I looked like one of them. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was a very rewarding effort. I, I liked working with the, the fabricators in the area, the designers, the architects. Uh, we had some interesting issues with the building code of Boston, which had a very punitive set of criteria for steel structures, especially for parking garages. So one of my first jobs in Boston was to put on a special day-long short course or workshop on design of structures, steel structures for fire. 
that caught a lot of attention and was written up in the major newspaper in Boston because it was such a literally hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, li I liked my job as, as a regional engineer and Bob Disquay was my boss and he was, he was a great boss. Mr. Steele. Absolutely. No, Bob was fantastic and, and what I learned from him, incredible. Mm -hmm. From him, of course, as well as Bill Malek and, and Ted Higgins. It was, uh, it was a real privilege to be part of that group. And this year you're celebrating your 30th anniversary of being on the AISC Specification Committee. I consider that to be, that is a committee that is very difficult to become a member of. It is probably the most important committee I've ever served on because it looks at developing design criteria that are used by engineers in this country, of course, but the rest of the world is looking at what we do for steel structures, whether it's for normal loads or whether we're looking at seismic criteria, for example. The rest of the world pays very close attention to what we do in, in this country. And to be part of the specification committee is uh, it's a real challenge, it's a real pleasure, it's a group of extremely competent people, and it's, uh, I, as I said, I consider it to be the most important committee I have ever been on, and I've been on a lot of committees <laughs> <laughs> over the years. Um, in that time, um, how has AISC changed? Well, we went through the long battle over years about LRFD versus ASD, and I'm not going to go into that. I mean, I have my personal opinions, but, but uh, I think it taught all of us a lot. And I think we have arrived at a very, very good, very usable specification. Uh, I look at the Eurocode, for example, which is a very fine code and the end result for design with the Eurocode and with our code and the Canadian code, whatever, they will give very close to the same results as you should get. Mm -hmm. But the Europeans know that their code is very, very complicated. There is no question about it. Mm -hmm. And it's not as workable as ours is. Actually, I think the Canadian code and the American code are very similar in many ways. I'm on the Canadian code committee as well. Are you? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> but it, it's... Uh, Codes are very important. Mm -hmm. We can't function without them and to have a workable, usable code with practical, realistic criteria I think is absolutely essential. So again, I think it's a real privilege to be a member of that committee. Do the Canadians and the, the, Euro, the Europeans in their Eurocode, did they ever have this debate about ASDL or FD? Did they? Well, um, the Canadians had the discussion about allowable stress design versus limit states design, as they call it. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. But that took place in the late 1970s. And they went to LRFD or limit states design back in the early 80s. And they have not looked back. Mm -hmm. The Europeans went straight to a limit states code. Okay. Maybe that's the reason it became so complicated. But they also wrote codes for all of the materials. So there are actually eight Eurocodes. Number three is steel. Number two is yeah. Number two is concrete. Number one is loads. Uh, number eight is seismic. Uh, it's um, number four is uh, composite. It's pretty complicated. Complicated. Yeah. So they've been there for a while. Well, they just now, in fact, because the development took about twenty years. Because they are currently there are twenty-seven members of the European. Union. There are also three countries that are not members, for example Norway is not a member of the European Union, but they adopted technical uh, codes. For example, Norway adopted Eurocode 3 as of April 1 this year. That included the Eurocode itself as well as the specific country-based special criteria that are necessary. If you have wind conditions or snow criteria, that sort of thing. Uh, but they're just now going through the development of the individual country-specific additions to the individual Eurocode itself. 
So Britain, for example, uh, is I think about to, or they have already adopted their British version. There are all kinds of battles going on in Britain because the fabricators don't like it. <laughs> they would like to keep the old BS, the British standards code. <laughs> the old BS. <laughs> well, it's British standards, that's what it's called. But it, it's, uh, it's, it's not going to happen. They have adopted it and it's, it's, it's turning into a fine workable code. But uh, and the, the steel construction people in Britain, of course, are working very closely with it. But it's been very complicated because not only are there 27 members of the European Union, there are also 27 different languages. Yes. <laughs> Do they have an official language that they, I mean, do they meet? Do they all come together and meet? Um, well, the languages are typically English, French, and German. But when they are discussing the developments going into the Eurocode, it all goes on in English. Oh. Sometimes we think it's a little funny English. We call it Euro-English because the, some of the, the colloquialism, colloquial terms, that sort of thing are a little, little different. But it, it works out okay. But it's very complicated because they all have to be translated into the language of the individual countries. Mm -hmm. It's a huge undertaking. Yeah. And they have yet to decide on how they're going to work to update these codes. That has not been finalized, and that's a major, major issue. They I look at, at us, what we do in the U.S., and they're jealous because we have a, a very fine system where we go through the development of additional criteria. And now, of course, we are trying to change only what is absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. I guess it would be a lot more complicated if each of our states maybe spoke a different language. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean here you're looking, for example, you're going from a country like, like uh, take Italy. Mm -hmm. They have serious seismic issues in, in certain areas of the country, whereas you go to um, take Norway, for example. Well, there have been earthquakes in a far distant past in the, up in the, the North Sea, but there, of course, temperature conditions and snow load conditions are very different from what you have to deal with in Italy. Mm -hmm. So all of these individual special conditions for the individual countries have to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what makes it so complicated. In fact, it was interesting last spring, no, it was last year, sorry, I was invited to come to Oslo, Norway, to be the, a, one of the featured speakers at a one-day short course they had on the Eurocodes. I was the only non-European, but to give a, an assessment from the worldwide view, so to speak, of, of, the, of the Eurocodes and the other codes in, around, the, around the world. And uh, I was asked questions, do you think Eurocodes would ever be adopted in the United States? I said, no. <laughs> Why not? I said, because we have excellent, absolutely, first-class codes in the United States, in Canada. There's no need to change them. But that your code is better. I said, no, it is not. Our code is just as good, and it's much easier to work with. Plus, if we were to change it and introduce your code instead of the AISC specification, probably our engineers would come to assassinate us, and they will be right. <laughs> probably. I mean, a lot of Tongue-in-cheek, of course. But they think are so complicated anyway, so... Yeah, if we change to something even more complicated model. I'm well, I've suggested to AISC, slightly tongue-in-cheek, that we should put on a short course on Eurocode 3 for steel structures. And I say that our engineers would fall on their knees and say, thank you, God, for AISC. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Show what the rest of the world has to do, and then they'd be thankful. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> little tongue-in-cheek here, but it's okay. <laughs> Uh, you founded the ASCE Committee on Design of Steel Building Structures in 1981. Uh, what kind of work does that committee do? Well, we give you one for instance. We looked at, for several years, a study of serviceability criteria for steel structures. Mm -hmm. It was a major study, actually. It lasted about five years. Jim Fisher was 
he was he headed up the task committee of that group at that time, and it re resulted in several major papers, several major conference presentations on the issues of serviceability and and how we measure that and how we deal with uh, things like drift, for example, in, in steel structures. That was one of the issues we dealt with. Uh, we published, we published, and the committee has published probably maybe 30 to 40 papers in various assembly journals. We work very closely with AISC, for example, uh, to put on sessions. Some of the sessions that are presented at the North American Steel Construction Conference mm -hmm. are, in some cases, based on suggestions from the committee, and in many cases, some of the speakers are members of that committee, and they come into it because of what the committee has done. So the committee works very closely with AISC and with the industry because the committee is not, it has very few professors. It's major designers like Larry Griffiths, mm -hmm. Jim Malley, for example, Shankar Nair, these are members of the committee. These are serious designers. Mm -hmm. And that was the intent when I formulated that committee was that it would be, I, w I don't want to use the word governed, but it will be populated by designers first and foremost to make sure that what was being discussed and what was ended up being presented to the profession would in fact come from practicing engineers offering practical solutions mm -hmm. and usable solutions. And it's been successful. Fantastic. And you recently stepped down as a member of the Structural Stability Research Council Executive Committee after 21 years. Tell us about your involvement over the years with SSRC. Well, when I first came to Lehigh back in 1968, Lynn Beadle, you may know the name, mm -hmm. he uh, was looking for a secretary to what was then called the Column Research Council, which eventually became the Structural Stability Research Council. And he asked me if I would take on the assignment as the technical secretary. So I said yes. and. Uh, uh, two years of very, very heavy-duty work, and, and it was a little difficult because I was a grad student at the same time. It was very helpful, very useful to me personally, the developments, but also I got to know the council. I met Ted Galambos there for the first time in, in spring of 1969. Uh, but the council has, it publishes the guide to stability design criteria for metal structures, mm -hmm. which is now out in its sixth edition. Uh, it's a massive work on stability, and it's recognized as the Bible, so to speak, on stability criteria all over the world. It's been a real pleasure to work with that group. It's a group of, of major researchers, designers. We have students that come in and participate. We hold our annual stability conference each year now at the same time and location as the AISC for the North American Steel Construction Conference. It's been very successful. SSRC has, is doing very, very important work. You talk to people like Ron Zimian, who chairs TC10 mm -hmm. of the AISC Specification Committee, that's the Committee on Stability. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, it, it's been a very fruitful collaboration between SSRC and AISC, and of course resulting in very advanced but practical and usable design criteria in the code. We can have discussions about that. There are some people who say that it's too complicated, but you're dealing with very complicated subjects. Right, right. So, but anyway, SSRC has been, it was founded in 1944 actually. Wow. So uh, it's very important. But I figured after 21 years on the executive committee, it was time to step down. <laughs> I served as, as vice chairman and, and also chairman of the SSRC for a total of eight years, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, I understand that you are a classical music aficionado uh, and that you used to host a classical music radio program. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's a particular love of mine. Mm -hmm. 
I was um, approached by the uh, National Public Radio Station in Tucson to become a, a weekend host for six-hour radio programs on classical music. Mm -hmm. That was in 1998, and I did this for nine years. It's, um, it's a great pleasure to bring this magnificent music to, to people. Mm -hmm. And I would have telephone calls in the studio when I was on the air, and all that sort of thing. But it's, uh, it was a real pleasure. Very different from engineering, uh -huh. but it just happens to be one of my most significant interests. <laughs> Do you have a favorite composer? Uh, you might say that. <laughs> well, I, I like almost everything in classical music, but my, by far my favorite is Mozart. And I've heard of him, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you've traveled the world, obviously. What was your favorite destination? Oh, I like them all. But I have a special fondness for, for France. I've spent a lot of time in France over the years. I speak French fluently. My wife now loves France as well. and uh, we, We've been there many times. But I like Portugal, for example. I like Italy. I like China a great deal. I, li I love Hong Kong, for example. I go happily to Hong Kong anytime I can. But uh, Australia, wonderful. Canada, terrific. My favorites, beyond everything else, are the United States and Canada. And I've been to all 50 states and all 10 Canadian provinces. Is there anywhere that you haven't been in the world that you still are looking oh, lots forward of to places. to? Lots of places. <laughs> <laughs> lots of places. What's all top it, all of it takes list? is money and time. <laughs> What's at the top of your list of where you want to go? I have never been to the city of Rome, and I'm ashamed to admit that. But I expect to be able to rectify that in the next couple of years. If you weren't involved in the engineering industry, um, what other profession do you think you would have liked? Good question. It's a tough one. I happen to like history. I read history like novels because mm -hmm. when I was in high school, I had a teacher who was the kind of teacher that if you have one like that in your lifetime, you're lucky. So I read history. I could have been a historian if I wanted to. My father wanted me to study and play the piano. My, one of my sisters is a, a concert pianist. Oh, wow. I but you decided don't play an instrument? No, I did. I played the trumpet for many years, okay. and I didn't want to play more than one instrument at the time, which was a mistake I now realize. But uh, yeah, I could, have been a, I could have been a musician. But uh, engineering in many ways is more rewarding, and you get to do things that probably are better paid, shall we say. <laughs> 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 but I could have been a musician, yes. I looked at um, my older sister as a pharmacist. She wanted me to study medicine. And uh, well, I was, you know, I looked a little at that, but I'm, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose engineering because I like to build things and see things completed, see beautiful structures, buildings, bridges. That's well, considering I, your career, I would guess that you've made the right, made the right choice. Um, I think so. <laughs> what are you most proud of in your career? That's a very good question. Um, I made it one of my prime efforts to bring to the profession uh, design methods, design criteria, approaches to solutions or design problems, and understanding of how materials perform, how steel performs, because you won't believe how much ignorance there is about these things. But that's an effort that I've been pursuing for many, many years, and I think I've been successful. There are still pockets of ignorance out there that have to be made unignorant, mm -hmm. so to speak. But that's a very important part of what I do. I consider that to be really, really critical. I mean, I did a lot of work in research also, but, mm -hmm. but the, the, to bring the results and the 
applications to our fellow engineers out there is, to my mind, the most important. What do you think has been your greatest accomplishment to date? Well, that's one of them. I mean, I have done certain things in, in research developments. For example, I did research on, on gusset plates a long time ago. There's some full-scale full scale testing before gusset plates get, got to be really, really catching the attention of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But that was based on work I had actually done while I worked for AISC as a regional engineer and as a research engineer. So we did some work on that. Did some work on certain composite systems, a lot of work on connections over the years. In my PhD work at Lehigh, I did dealt with stability of columns, and uh, that has been a very interesting result. That's one of the things I'm supposed to be known for. It's interesting that the doctoral dissertation I wrote at Lehigh in 1972, it continues to be referenced in papers today, it's 40 years later. <laughs> and what was, that, what was the topic? It dealt with stability of, of columns. Stability, wow. Um, I mean, that, that, this was deterministic and probabilistic solutions for columns, and so it provided the uh, limit states or the LRFD criteria for, for columns, for, in fact. Very tricky. But that's a long time ago. What do you think is um, going to be the next big innovation in our industry? Well, we are looking at these performance-based specifications. I suspect that is coming. I think the profession is a little nervous about it because they are not sure that they can guarantee the performance that they feel may be needed. I think it will be a, a serious educational effort. Uh, we'll see what happens. But right now also I see, for example, the use of cold form steel, very lightweight steel mm -hmm. in residential construction is becoming very, very important as it is all over the world, in fact. Mm -hmm. A lot of research projects uh, in countries like in, in South America, for example, in China, they are looking at cold form steel and learning from what we do in the U.S. since we had the first code on cold form steel structure. So it, it's a, that's a whole area that AISC typically hasn't dealt with because it's cold form steel and very lightweight. Mm -hmm. But steel is steel mm -hmm. and it helps the industry. So I've been a member of that committee as well, the AISI cold form committee. <laughs> <laughs> for many years. Well, it, it's, the, the, you know, there are so many overlapping areas. Mm -hmm. Stability is stability. Connection design varies a little bit from specific types of connections to other types of connections. Welding is welding. Bolts are bolts. And so you apply that to different applications in, in structures, in steel structures or cold form structures, and it's really pretty much all the same. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of just making sure that you focus specifically on what is needed for the particular problem you're trying to solve. So that's, uh, that's part of what the fun is. Yeah. <laughs> well, Radar, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today and getting to know you a little bit. You're fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I wanted to end this in saying that um, it has been and continues to be a real pleasure to work with everybody at AISC. Really, I'm serious. It's very close to my heart. Well, that's always nice to hear especially from our volunteers who do so much for us. But we couldn't do what we do without our volunteers. But AISC is probably the best-run organization of its kind in the world. Wow. And I've seen a lot of them, really. And the staff is absolutely superb. Well, thank you. So from Roger Furch on down, absolutely superb. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Everybody will appreciate hearing that. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Join us next month when I'll be talking to Charlie Carter, AISC Vice President and Chief Structural Engineer. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.